Professor Bill McGuire has said the big takeaway from COP27, these climate conferences just aren't working. And McGuire, who only this year published the controversial book Hot House Earth, An Inhabitant's Guide, has written about his criticism in The Guardian. The Emeritus Professor of Geophysical and Climate Hazards from London's University College willingly wades into challenging and frequently controversial conversations. He says, rather than a bloated global talking shop, we need something smaller, leaner and fully focused on the crisis at hand. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Maguire writes, In the end, the recent shenanigans at the COP27 meeting in Chowmel Sheik at least ended up making modest progress on loss and damage. High emissions nations agreeing to pay those countries bearing the brunt of climate mayhem that they had little to do with bringing about. Maguire continues, But yet again there was no commitment to cutting the emissions accelerating this crisis, without which this agreement is nothing more, one delegate commented, than a down payment on disaster. No seasoned observers are of the opinion that the world is any nearer tackling the climate emergency. Indeed, the real legacy of COP27 could well be exposing the climate summit for what it has become. A bloated travelling circus that sets up once a year and from which little but words ever emerge. It does really beg a belief that in the course of 27 COPs, there has never been a formal agreement to reduce the world's fossil fuel use. Not only has the elephant been in the room all this time, but over the last quarter of a century, it has taken on gargantuan proportions, and still its presence goes unheeded. It is no surprise, then, that from COP1 in Berlin in 1995 to Egypt this year, emissions have continued, barring a small downward blip at the height of pandemic, to head remorselessly upwards. And I'm pretty excited, because just this morning, I made arrangements to talk with Bill Maguire about his new book, Hot House Earth. And that's coming up early in January next year, so keep an eye out for that. And from Reuters we hear, Analysis, Australia's climate policies don't match its big talk at COP27. The story says, and the dateline is Sydney, November 20. Australia is talking up its green credentials at the annual UN Climate Summit. But its policies do not match the portrayal as it continues to support mining and gas projects and fuels the crisis through its enormous fossil fuel exports. A year after his predecessor was slammed as a climate laggard, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's government is touting tougher goals for cutting carbon emissions and a pledge to reduce methane emissions as nations at COP27 in Egypt seek a global climate deal. Now we turn to the conversation. Where we're here, it's time to add climate change and net zero emissions to the RBA's top three economic goals. A public policy researcher from the University of Oxford, Toby Phillips, says, Increasingly, climate change is at the centre of government decision-making. 
This year's federal budget devoted pages to an examination of fiscal impact of climate change. Treasury has established a climate change modelling unit and it will be front and centre of next year's intergenerational report. Yet it is still nowhere near the centre of deliberations of Australia's Reserve Bank, one of the most important economic decision-making institutions. And now Julian Spector tells us long-duration storage firm Energy Vault pivots to short-term batteries. Writing on Canary Media, he says, one of the buzziest startups attempting to disrupt the clean energy storage sector has an innovative new strategy, selling regular old batteries just like everybody else. Over the past few years, Energy Vault raised hundreds of millions of dollars from investors on the premise that it could do something that widely available lithium-ion batteries couldn't store clean energy cheaply for many hours at a time. Cracking the code on long-duration energy storage would turn variable wind and solar power into dependable, round-the-clock resources. The Department of Energy considers this crucial to cleaning up the electricity sector and just opened up $350 million to test out emerging long-duration technologies. In an article for The Conversation, Edward Doddridge says... What planting tomatoes shows us about climate change. The research associate in physical oceanography from the University of Tasmania says, There is a piece of garden law in my hometown which has passed down for generations. Never plant your tomatoes before show day, which in Tasmania is the fourth Saturday in October. If you're foolhardy enough to plant them earlier, your tomato seedlings will suffer during the cold nights and won't grow. But does this kind of seasonal wisdom still work as the climate warps? We often talk about climate change in large-scale ways, but how much the global average surface temperature will increase? Nations are trying to keep the temperature rise well under 2 degrees Celsius. Taken as an average, that sounds tiny. After all, the temperature varies much more than that when day gives way to night. But remember, before the Industrial Revolution, the world's average surface temperature was 12.1 degrees Celsius. It's now almost a degree hotter, and could be up to 3 degrees Celsius hotter by the end of the century, if high emissions continue. Meanwhile, writing in the Newcastle Herald, Jennifer Dudley Nicholson tells readers how electric vehicles will change cities. She writes, Underground charging stations for electric cars, more public parks on top of them, and libraries, restaurants and vegetable patches populating what used to be petrol stations. This is the reimagined future for Australia, according to a design initiative proposed by MINI, and answered by six architectural students and RMIT design students. The car maker, along with Green Magazine, challenged architecture agencies and students to create designs for a zero-carbon project, covering a city block in North Melbourne with a focus on electric vehicles and the changes they could deliver. BMW Group Australia marketing head Nikesh Kohil says the initiative, dubbed Invert 4.0, was created to see how Australia could overcome the challenge of recharging vehicles in urban settings and redesign buildings to get unexpected benefits from it. Meanwhile, ABC News tells us chefs, doctors and real estate developers among new coalition calling to rid kitchens of gas cooking for decades, natural gas has sold itself to families as the fastest, most efficient way to cook. 
but now there's a battle for your kitchen stove and a push to get you to embrace electric for your health and for the planet. A coalition of chefs, doctors, climate scientists and real estate developers have joined forces to push back against the gas industry's marketing with the aim of removing gas from kitchens worldwide. Campaigners say, in addition to heating the climate, gas stoves contribute to asthma and other health conditions. And that coalition thinks that if they can rid the kitchens of gas, they'll rid homes of the fossil fuel altogether. The Global CookSafe Coalition is being launched in Sydney today and announcing partnerships with developers, Lendlease and GPT, who have agreed to stop putting any gas in new buildings by 2030 and to retrofit existing buildings by 2040. Now we turn to The Guardian, where we hear... We couldn't fail them. How Pakistan's flood spurred fight at COP for loss and damage fund. The story begins. In early September, after unprecedented rainfall had left a third of Pakistan underwater, its climate change minister set at the country's store for COP27. We're on the front line and intend to keep loss and damage and adapting to climate catastrophes at the core of our arguments and negotiations. There we're now moving away from that, Sherry Riemann said. Pakistan brought the resolve to the negotiations in Sharm el-Sheikh and, as president of G77 plus China negotiating bloc, succeeded in keeping developing countries united on loss and damage, despite efforts by some rich countries to divide them. Its chief negotiator, Nebel Muir, was backed by a team of savvy veteran negotiators who had witnessed the devastation and suffering of the floods, which caused $30 billion of damage and economic losses. Every day, Muir repeated the same message. Loss and, damage is not, loss and damage is not charity. It's about climate justice. Links for all those stories can be found in the show notes. We've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. And so until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And remember... Come January, I'll be talking with Bill McGuire. Make sure you look out for that. So until next time, please take care, stay safe, and please share this with your friends.